0: Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Morning. I like that. Uh, I don't know why everybody's afraid of the front, but thank you for saying good morning. I appreciate that. My name's Stephen Obert. I'm the youth director here at Disciples Church, and it's my pleasure to get to bring the sermon this morning. Um, I'm, I'm up here just so that Josh could have a week off with his family. Um, so if you if you saw him here or if you're going to go meet him after the service to look at the new campus... Um, that's why he's here still, but I get to bring the sermon. So uh, lucky me, it really is my joy, uh, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm also thankful to, to bless our pastor, Josh, uh, who um, works tirelessly for us, for our family. So um, thankful to give him a break. Um, I'm going to be sharing from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. So get your Bibles out. Open that up to John chapter 9. Of course, that's going to be our main passage this morning. Uh, we will jump to some other passages to look at, but this will be where our main focus is. So I'm going to read all of those verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll, and we'll begin. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Please bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare to dig into God's word. Father, thank you for this day that you have made. Your sovereign hand has ordained it, and we are here to worship you as a family. Father God, guide our time this morning. Holy Spirit, move mightily this morning. Open blind eyes and deaf ears and bring new life to dead hearts as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Holy Spirit, move in the heart of the believers. Lead us into all truth as truth is yours. We are desperate for your work. May we glorify you, be built up in you, And enjoy the fellowship of our family this day as we focus on you, Lord. Amen. So today's text brings us to the end of John's account of the crucifixion. We have an interesting verse in the middle of the passage that reveals John's intent and his audience. Verse 35 and 36. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. John declares his desire that you also may believe. It's always important for us to understand who the you in the passage is, because we so often just place ourselves in there as if John was writing this letter to us. Now, I don't mean to say that this passage is not applicable to us. Uh, Indeed, it's very applicable, and we're going to get into that in my first point. But I want to introduce the sermon by reminding you about john's audience john who was writing his gospel primarily to the jews when you understand this you will read passages like the famous john 3:16 in the proper context when john refers to the world as he does all throughout this gospel he does not mean every single person to have ever existed he is using a term that would help his specific audience realize that God was not just the God of Israel, but the God of every tribe and tongue and nation. Now God has designed his word to work in such a way that it's eternal and relevant to us who exist thousands of years after this letter was written. However, when we forget the original audience and the intent, we can miss some important points being made in the text. As we go along this morning, we're going to see John address this original audience and the connections that we can make from that, as well as unpack how this applies to us today. So, uh, if you haven't heard me preach before, as usual, I have three points. My favorite thing to do. Um, The first point that I want to unpack this morning is the blindness of the self-righteous. The second point is the prophecy fulfilled and the third point is the beauty of Christ's work, so the blindness of the self-righteous, the prophecy fulfilled, and the beauty of Christ's work. So uh, let's dive in. Point one: the blindness of the self-righteous. John chapter 19, verse 31. "Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The Jews, in order to quote-unquote honor God on the Sabbath, just asked Pilate to have his soldiers break the legs of those being crucified so that their bodies would not be left up on the cross, and it would not defile the land and ruin their Sabbath. Uh, If you weren't here last week, when people were crucified, what crucifixion does is it causes you to suffocate. Uh, The weight of your body hangs down and you slowly lose your ability to breathe. One of the ways that you would breathe is to push up on your legs so you could catch some breath. If the soldiers broke the legs of the people that were being crucified, they would no longer be able to lift themselves up and they would die quicker. That was the whole point for the Jews asking uh, Pilate to have their legs broken, that they would die that night and that they wouldn't be hanging on a cross on their Sabbath day and thus defile it. A quick lesson on the day of preparation will be helpful to make my point and beneficial for you. The day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. You see, under the Old Covenant, there were many laws to follow on the Sabbath day in order to honor and obey God. On top of this, the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the time, added a ridiculous amount of guidelines to the Sabbath. For example, in the Mosaic Law, one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, which means, among other things, the Jews were not supposed to do any regular work on Saturdays. This was their Sabbath day. But to clarify what this work would encompass, the Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what types of activities would qualify as work. And within those 39 categories, there are many subcategories. So to follow the rule of not working on the Sabbath, there are literally thousands of subrules to follow including the number of steps you can take and how many letters you can write you see obedience to god to honor him on a sabbath day of rest is good and right it is something he's commanded uh, it's a blessing for us but these men unfortunately added to god's command and created an undue burden upon the people to obey god's law and their additions to rightly honor of God, we even today have to prepare in order to have a day of rest or a Sabbath that we devote to him. Now, because of this preparation, this, this work that had to be done in order to take a day off, the Jews called the day prior to the Sabbath the day of preparation. It uh, wasn't a very creative name, right? <laughs> now, what amazes me, and Pastor Josh made this point a few weeks ago, is the same Jews who did everything they could to force the Roman government to murder Jesus, are the same ones concerned about keeping the Sabbath to honor God. They asked Pilate to break the legs of the men so that they would die that very day in order to take them down that day so that they would not be on a cross and defile the land, thus breaking their Sabbath. It just makes you want to scream out, what about the law against murder? What we see here is the blindness of the self-righteous. These religious leaders trusted in their obedience for salvation while simultaneously being condemned by their disobedience. Was keeping the Sabbath more important than keeping the command against murder? Of course not. This is why I titled this section, The Blindness of the Self-Righteous. Now, what I mean by self-righteous is that they were trusting in themselves to provide the righteousness they needed to be in good standing with God. Even though God had clearly declared to them that none are righteous, that they have all sinned against God and are desperate for His saving work to give them a righteousness that does not come from within them, they still trusted in their own deeds, their own obedience, their own work. They say they did this because of their spiritual blindness. They could not hear or understand this truth that God had already made clear to them. So they trusted in their work to make them right with God. And in hindsight, we can see how clearly they missed this. It's easy for us to look back into the passage and go, you can't honor God by disobeying him. I mean, it literally seems insane to us. How can you even mention honoring God while you pressure someone to murder another human who was innocent? Uh, I really do love working with youth. Uh, That's why I am the uh, youth director. But one of the things that I love about youth so much is that they're really raw and honest. Uh, A lot of times they just aren't as jaded as adults are. Um, A few weeks ago, I was at Liberty High School for our, our Campus Life meeting, and I got to do the recap for the day and and then for the month that we had done a little series in. And in that recap, I kind of cover the different areas that we had talked about, and then I get to present the gospel to them. Um, And it was really cool because I got to ask some important questions, and and what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask them, I'm going to give you their answers, but I want you to hear the question, and I want you to answer it for yourself. The first thing that I asked them was, do you have someone in your life that you trust, that you trust with everything, someone that you can go to and just really be honest about who you are and where you're at? Uh, and, and many of them, yes, some of them is mom, best friend, but unanimously, most of those kids said yes really quickly. They had someone that they could do that with. I said, well, what if that person betrayed you? What if they lost your trust? What if they shared those secrets? And they got real quiet. I said, could you forgive them? Like, would they ever be that person again? And they unanimously said no. There's no way. Losing trust was very important to them. Uh, If that person did it, eventually as I kind of pushed through, they they said no. We we couldn't even forgive them for that. And then I said, okay, I'm going to ask you one more question. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to answer in your head like I want you guys to do this morning. I said, have you... Ever betrayed someone? Have you ever been that person and you lost that trust? It's kind of like that. You could hear the pin drop. You could see on their faces they were getting it. You guys see the connection, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we are all guilty of this. When we get angry at someone for doing the very same things we do, we reveal the error of self-righteousness. You see, the Jews had upheld standards in the name of honoring God, but they dishonored God in their disobedience at the very same time. And this is what Paul condemns in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Church, if we don't see ourselves in our fallen nature, as also being the blind, self-righteous ones, we are missing it. Prior to God giving us a new heart, we were the ones asking for Pilate to break Jesus' knees so we could honor God. And we know this to be true because even after God graciously gives us faith, we still get angry at others for doing the very same things we do. We still struggle with the sin even after God has saved us. The Jews were blind in their self-righteousness, and they missed the very righteousness of God that they so desperately needed. As a matter of fact, it was this deep need that had placed Christ on the cross. God answered our blindness with the life of his very own Son. Before we move on to our second point, I just have to encourage you here. If you are depending on or trusting in your work, your obedience, stop. Repent. Trust in Christ. Have you ever betrayed someone even though you'd find it unforgivable? Then how do you expect to be justified by your so-called obedience? All of us have fallen short. The high school kids I spoke with were just honest enough to admit it. Please don't be fooled by your proud and penitent heart. We are all in danger of the Romans 2.1 passage. We are all desperate for the saving work of Jesus. You see, the very reason God gave his Son to die was to save us from this self-righteousness and blindness unto an eternal relationship with him as our Lord. We are as desperate as the Jews who had Jesus crucified. If we trust in our obedience instead of Christ alone, we will remain blind and condemned. See God's mercy and grace here. Jesus gave up his life to save people like you and me who repeat this act daily. The same root of sin, though it reveals itself on very different levels, still reveals the same heart problem and our desperate need of a Savior. So who is this Savior? In my next point, we're going to see that it was Jesus who fulfilled the prophecies of the coming Messiah the Savior that the Jews had been waiting for. So point two, the prophecy fulfilled. Uh, John 19, verses 32 through 37. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, John points the Jews back to the very scriptures that they had heard and known to show them that Jesus was the one they were waiting for. That's why it's so helpful to understand the audience that the letter was written to. Now, the beauty of this is that you and I also have the Old Testament scriptures. We can ourselves look at them to see if Jesus really did fulfill this prophecy of the coming Messiah. So let's look at the scriptures and see what connections John is making here. We see the first prophecy fulfilled in verse 36 that reads, Not one of his bones will be broken. This is referring to a specific passage in the Old Testament, and it shows a fulfillment of another very common practice of the Jews. So, the first and most direct fulfillment of Scripture is Psalm 34, 19, and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The only truly righteous person to have ever lived is Jesus. Now, this particular psalm was written by King David, who reigned around 1000 BC. So, this passage, according to God, through John, was written about Jesus himself 1000 years prior to Jesus even being here in the flesh. Now, that's not the most amazing part. Let's look at, at Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. In case you're wondering, why we jumped in the middle of that passage, you're like, what are you eating? eating? I'm going to give you a quick overview so you have a better understanding of what we're talking about. Here's what's going on in Exodus passage. The Jews had been enslaved to the Egyptians for many years, and God was delivering them from this slavery. God had already sent many plagues on Egypt, but as God would have it, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, and he would not let God's people go. So God had one more plague that he would bring prior to Pharaoh finally releasing the Israelites from their slavery. This plague was the worst of all as God was going to pass through the land that very night and kill the firstborn of every household and every livestock in the entire land. So God commanded his people to follow certain instructions so that God would pass over their homes and not take the life of their firstborn. One of these instructions was that they had to sacrifice a lamb for this Passover, and they had to take the blood of the lamb and wipe it over their doors and on their doorpost. They had to eat this lamb entirely. If they couldn't, they had to invite other people into their home that night to eat it. And whatever was left, they had to burn. It had to be a male lamb. It had to be a lamb without spot or blemish. And as God would see fit, they were not allowed to break any of its bones. God had commanded them, even before he had completed it and freed them, to repeat this meal, this celebration annually, as a way of remembering what God was about to do. And this is why they named the celebration the Passover. Now, in the passage from John, the Jews had literally just finished eating the Passover. In fact, Jesus himself shared this meal with his disciples the night that he was betrayed. Jesus even told his disciples that it was his body that would be broken and his blood that would be shed for them. Church, do you see the connection here? You see how this celebration was a foreshadow of the true deliverance from the worst enemy, sin and death. Egypt was not the worst enemy of the people of God. Pastor Josh made this point last week in his sermon. Your deepest concern is not cancer, it's not unemployment. Your deepest concern is the fact that you are separated from God because of your sin. You are in need of a Savior, a sacrificial lamb to take your place. And if this is still you today, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then see that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the true Passover lamb, the one that takes away the sins of the world, according to John 2. See Jesus fulfilling the foreshadow and testimony of God's salvation. Just as God had commanded his people not to break any of the bones of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, the true, the better sacrificial lamb, would not have any of his bones broken. Do you guys see God's sovereignty here to preserve and fulfill this prophecy in Jesus, I mean, think about the trial that Christ went through. He was beaten by Roman soldiers, trained men. He was flogged. He was hit so many times that his face was unrecognizable. He was pierced with massive nails and hung on a cross. And even though those same trained Roman soldiers were commanded to break the legs of the men hanging on those crosses that day, Jesus would not have a single bone broken. Why? Because it was the plan of our sovereign God. Every detail and step played out as God would have it, so that even though the Jews, who may not have understood for a thousand years why they weren't to break any of the bones of their Passover lamb, God would reveal it through John's testimony. They didn't break the bones because the true lamb's bones were not to be broken. See the sovereignty of God at work here, Christian, and be amazed. The next fulfilling of Scripture was from the prophet Zechariah, who wrote in chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for For an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This passage in Zechariah was written 500 years prior to the incarnation. John said he was pointing out these details so that you, the Jews who were his audience, would believe. He's essentially saying, You know these stories, you have the scriptures, Jesus is the fulfillment of them. And I'm showing you this fulfillment in hopes that you would believe in him as your Messiah. Now, by God's grace, you and I have available to us the scriptures as well. We can look for ourselves to see that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah. You see, these truths don't just provide ample evidence for us to see, they would have provided overwhelming evidence to the Jews who would have known about these prophecies, and who would have celebrated the Passover meal from childhood every year. As well as you and I know Thanksgiving and Christmas, they would know this Passover lamb. These events should have been like a puzzle, all falling together for the Jewish people to see. And John is desperately calling out to them with this testimony. Look, he's the fulfillment. Believe. So with all this overwhelming evidence, all this proof of who Christ is and what he's done, why do we see so many arguments today against Jesus when the scriptures are so clear? Well, when we chase out the answer, we come down to the root issue, namely that in sin, prior to faith, our hearts are dead and they want to be God. They want to sit on the throne. Prior to faith, we want to be the God of our own lives. We decide what we believe to be true, and we are the ultimate standard. You see, the Bible is clear. When we are dead in our sins, our dead heart is deceived. It will not turn to God. Indeed, according to Romans 8, it cannot. That is why when all the evidence is shown and proven, the dead heart still denies the truth. You see, a heart dead in sin doesn't want to give up its false throne. It is indeed incapable of doing so. It actually believes that it will get to remain on the throne. So as lovingly and clearly as I can, let me share this with you. If you live your entire life as if you're the king, when you meet the true king one day, and you will meet him one day, you won't argue that his punishment is unfair. For those who steal the throne of God and sit on it their entire life as if the throne belongs to them, as if they are God, you won't make excuses when you answer to him one day. All the evidence that you have heard your entire life and your very own heart that suppresses the truth that you know will rage against you on that day. And so I ask again, with all this proof, why is it that people still don't believe? Well, what we see over and over again in the Gospel of John is that what the heart that is dead in sin needs most desperately is to be born again. And this leads me very well into my third point in the last few verses of this chapter. Point three, the beauty of Christ's work. John 19 Verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. It's interesting that all four Gospels give an account of this man at the burial of Jesus, but there is nothing else written about him in the Scriptures. Even though there is little account of who he was, when we look carefully, we see what a great testimony he has in the Scriptures. This Joseph was secretly a disciple because he feared the Jews. Now after seeing his Savior die, Instead of fearing the very ones who killed Jesus, Joseph boldly goes out and asks for Jesus' body that he might lay him in a tomb, the very tomb that Joseph owned. So the same man who followed Christ secretly now makes a true public proclamation by attending to Jesus' lifeless body. And as only one of the disciples would, he performs the burial custom and places Jesus in a tomb that the book of Matthew says Joseph cut with his own hand. We know from the other gospel testimonies that Joseph was one of the Sanhedrin. It's a Jewish ruling council at the time, so he was a member of this ruling council. So in his testimony, we see a man who was too afraid to admit to the other Jewish rulers that he believed in Jesus. And now he makes a public proclamation that could not be denied Even though the Jews had threatened death to those who were following Jesus, Joseph reveals by his actions that Jesus had saved him and that he was one of Jesus' disciples. See, when we consider John's audience, it makes sense that he would use the testimony of a Jewish leader who trusted in Jesus as the Savior to encourage other Jewish leaders to believe in Christ. He says, one of your very own is trusting in Christ. See the testimony. Believe. And what we notice so clearly about Joseph is the difference in his life after Jesus' death. Prior to to Christ's death, Joseph follows Jesus in secret. After his death, he follows Jesus openly. The Jews would have had no doubt what tomb Jesus was placed in. What we see here is a heart that has been given new life. And what we know from John's gospel already is that those whom God saves will live radically different lives. When he gives us a new heart, we give up the throne. And he rightly sits on it. We live for him. We also know that God will not lose one of his beloved. Now, I left you hanging a little bit in my last point, and I found the perfect segue to this passage. Remember I said we see over and over again in John that the Heart that is dead in sin most desperately needs to be born again. Well, speaking of born again, we have a familiar, a familiar person show up here in John chapter 19. In fact, we first heard Pastor Josh teach about him all the way back in April of 2016. His name is Nicodemus. Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's one of my favorite sections of the Gospel of John, and probably, for me personally, one of the best introductions on the way that God works salvation in the hearts of men. So how many of you remember the passage from Pastor Josh's sermon almost two years ago? Uh, I thought that might be the case, so I'm going to go ahead and read it again for us. That way we have a refresher. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1-15. through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, Essentially, what Nicodemus is saying, it's impossible for you to save yourself. You must be born again. You see, if God does not cause you to be born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, if that concerns you, then look again at the testimony that John gives of Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the Jews. He would have likely memorized major portions of the Old Testament. He was most likely taught about God from a very young age, and he should have been well-versed in how God saves his people. He should have known God very well, but even he missed it. Jesus actually called him out in the passage. He said, you're the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? What we see in the closing of John chapter 19 is that Nicodemus holds a much better understanding now. The Pharisee who came to see Jesus at night in secret now gives a fragrant offering of great cost of aloes and myrrh to his Lord and publicly, along with Joseph, another Jewish leader, lays his Savior in the tomb. He may not have understood back in chapter 3, but his actions in chapter 19 display the faith that God had given to him and his love for Jesus as his Lord When these two men perform the burial custom of Jesus, they publicly show that they are Jesus' disciples. Previously, both men hid for fear of the Jewish leaders. And both men, even after the Jewish leaders have Jesus killed, display to a very watching world that they belong to him. Now, the way John uses these testimonies to plead with other Jews who were not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah is important. He specifically shows them that Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus and that even some of their very own leaders have seen the truth, trusted in Jesus, and have followed Him as their Messiah. So why doesn't the evidence that the Word of God supplies convince people alone? It's because of what Romans 1.18 says, that the heart dead in sin suppresses the truth. This is why it must be born again. God must give this dead heart new life so that it sees these truths, and instead of suppressing them as it once did, it now has new affections and savors the truths. In its new affections, it sees God for who he is and loves him for it. This new heart sees sin as well and despises it. A heart dead in sin must be born again. While facts or evidence itself cannot change someone's heart, God does see fit to use gospel truths, biblical evidence, facts, and fulfilled prophecy as the means for his sovereign work in giving someone new life. It is the vehicle that he chose. So when John and his gospel, or one of the pastors, or any of our members proclaim biblical truth, we aren't trusting that our words or our delivery or even the truths themselves will be sufficient to change your heart. No, we're trusting that God might see fit to use us and use them in his effectual work to change your heart. Ultimately, what I want you to see is that God is the one who saves. All the evidence in the world will not work apart from God giving people eyes to see and ears to hear. And the good news is this. God does indeed save sinners like me and like you from your sin. Matthew 1.21 reads, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's no questions there. It is a work he will do. The very purpose for the incarnation of Jesus was always the aim of the cross and the propitiation for his people. God is not flippant in his acting. His will cannot be thwarted. He will save his people from their sins. Just consider Nicodemus. I've found in my life that it is way easier to teach someone about something the very first time they learn it than it is to retrain someone who has learned about something incorrectly. You see, Nicodemus had learned about God But his understanding was incorrect. And since it is so much harder to convince someone that they are wrong when they have been taught all of their lives about a certain object, it must have been very hard for Nicodemus to believe what Jesus was telling them. Just look at the way he responds to Jesus. How can these things be? But here's the beauty of the gospel God does the very hard things. In fact, God does the impossible. He saves all who are his. God is the author of salvation. He will save his people. There will not be one drop of the Savior's blood shed in vain. Oh, that God would move in your hearts today and that you would see the beauty of his saving grace in Christ Jesus. So let me close by wrapping all of this up together and show you how amazing God's word is. We started with the blindness of the self-righteous Jews, who, while trusting in their own obedience, showed that their deeds actually condemned them because they were breaking God's commandments about murder. We unpacked how, prior to salvation, that is true of all of us. We are all condemned by our actions. And even though we may have never had someone who was innocent killed, we still have the same root heart issue And we prove it when we would condemn people for doing the very same thing that you and I do. We then walk through the passages that reveal Jesus as the one who fulfilled the prophecy from the Old Testament. And we spoke about how even with these evidences, people are still hard-hearted and unwilling to see the truth. When we dug into why that was, we saw that the fallen man is dead in sin and most desperately needs to be born again. This is the only true answer to our dilemma of being dead in our sins. We not only saw this from John chapter 3, but we saw God save the very man that Jesus explained this to. What makes a man who a few short chapters prior argues with Jesus and hides for fear of other men, give up a large sum of money to pour out fragrances on the body of Christ and publicly display his devotion to him? nothing but a heart that has been born again can do that. We see that Jesus went to the cross to make this happen. Jesus' death was the answer to our dead hearts. He was and is the true Passover lamb who had none of his bones broken. He is the true Lord and Savior, and there is salvation in no one else. Christians see the evidence and the work of God and praise Him for His work in your heart. Thank Him for all that He has done through Jesus for you, and live your days for Him. We're not saved by what we do, but we are saved to do work. God has prepared it beforehand for us. It's a sweet gift to honor our Lord with. If you are here today and you do not believe, it doesn't matter how much evidence I give you. You are desperate for God's regenerating work in your spiritually dead heart. And I call out to you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can cry out to God too, to give you a new heart, to remove your heart of stone. Plead for the faith that Christ has died to secure. And don't just walk out, grab one of the leaders and talk to us after the service. Please bow your heads and I'll close us in prayer as the worship team comes back up. Father, thank you for this day that you have made, Lord. For John's gospel, his, his testimony of your son and the, the work that you did at the cross. God, we're desperate for you. We're desperate to have eyes that can see and ears that can hear. But apart from your saving work, none will turn to you. Our dead hearts suppress the truth. And we need to be born again, God. Thank you that you do this work, that you've not left us to ourselves. We're so undeserving of your grace, of your son on the cross. I pray that we would leave here rejoicing in your finished work, with a joy in our hearts to live our lives for you, to live radically different lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.